0: Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. On December 27th, 2023, a Twin Otter aircraft operated by Air Tindy crashed in Canada's high north, approximately 300 kilometers northeast of Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. Ten people were on board, there were injuries, it was nighttime, and it was blizzard conditions. This episode is a first-hand account of the search and rescue which was conducted by the Canadian Armed Forces, specifically the Royal Canadian Air Force, along with rescuers from the Dyavik Mine. Our podcast talks to real-life heroes, and we work hard to preserve their voices. My guests today are exactly that, real-life heroes. We honour them, and we honour their colleagues, and the work that they do to save people's lives. Here is the story of that rescue in their voices. Hey, everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. And I've been really looking forward to this conversation because the tagline to our podcast, Go Bold, is talking to real life heroes. And candidly, I don't think there's anyone that exemplifies that more than those that help to rescue others. And so our episode today is focused on the search and rescue response to a December 27th 2023 crash of an air attendee twin otter aircraft and so joining me today is royal canadian air force pilot captain jason shaw and royal canadian air force sergeant vincent c benoit who is a tech. and uh, for those of you that don't know what a tech is we'll learn that here in a few minutes but um, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you here on Go Bold. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so Jason, how about I start with you, uh, Captain Shaw. As I do with all of my guests on this podcast, I start by asking what was your motivation to serve and why did you pick the branch that you did?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's not really a crazy story for me. I guess I'd wanted to be a pilot since I was a, a kid uh, and always in interest in the military as well. I uh, didn't really have the opportunity to get in the military as a pilot. I got in the Army at uh, the start when I was 21. I uh, served in the Army for about eight years. Then, about that kind of halfway point through my career, I had the opportunity to switch into a program within the military and become a pilot. So, I did that, uh, went back to school for that, did all the training, and ended up being selected to fly multi engine and ultimately to be a SAR pilot on the uh, C 130 Hercules.
0: That's awesome. And so you start out in the Army and then you transition to the Air Force. Is that a easy, uh, like, I don't mean in terms of flying, but is the transition between services within the Canadian Armed Forces, is that a easy process or is that involved?
1: Uh, the application process and to make all that happen, there was a little bit involved with it. Uh, there's also a bit of a, like a cultural difference too, but I had a that piece in between the Army and the Air Force. Uh, I had to go back to school to get a degree as well. So it almost provided this um, kind of like a buffer in between the two branches.
0: So I have to pull at the string a little bit. Um, What was the impetus? I'm assuming it was just the fact of being able to fly, but was that the primary reason to kind of switch from Army to to Air Force?
1: Yeah, that was it. I, um, like I said, always wanted to be a pilot, just didn't really have the opportunity. And then Serving the Army, I realized that there were some different programs you can get to the military and just kind of kept that kept that alive in the back of my uh, back of my mind until I had the opportunity, until I at that right uh, point in my career where I was probably like a decent candidate for these kind of programs. Um, the one I got into, it's called UTPNCM, which basically you're a non-commissioned member in the military. They send you back to school, you become an officer, and ultimately, you know, for me, you, be, you begin your training to become a pilot as well
0: that's awesome it's it's so nice to know that there are those programs that exist within the forces that enable you to kind of follow your dreams i think that is super cool and sergeant benoit uh, what uh, what was your motivation to serve
2: well i joined the military quite early i was 16 when i joined the reserve at first uh that time was 2006 was full uh full force of afghanistan at that point so that was the motivation kind of wanted to serve the country and and do my part so uh yeah, joined at 16, 2006, and then I deployed in Afghanistan in two thousand nine. So you do the math; I was uh, fairly young at the time, right? And uh, you know that's kind of the momentum that I uh, I got in, and then I can still carry it to this day. And then maybe we can touch on it later on the uh, conversation about about that momentum. But uh, yeah, and then I did I did about ten years, uh, just over ten years in the army. Uh, did a bunch of uh, really exciting deployment and, and courses, uh, in the army. I, I uh, my s- last six years were uh, in a sniper platoon in the oh. army and, uh, Afghanistan was over. I wanted to keep serving and, uh, help Canadian citizen. So I transitioned to SAR, uh, SAR tech is, uh, you gotta go through selection and then it's a year long course. And uh, once that was complete, I was posted to Trenton for uh, four years and uh, then uh, Winnipeg. I've been in Winnipeg for uh, will be three years this
0: summer. I think that's kind of fascinating. Both of you started out in the Army and ended up in the Air Force. That's uh, that's kind of cool. That's that's the first time that's happened, uh, you know, where I've had two guests that have had similar career paths, um, you know, different vocations, but similar career paths. Um Although this is not the topic of conversation for this episode, um, Sergeant Benoit, I would just like to hear your thoughts about what it was like to serve in Afghanistan because I think it's it's commendable to you that you wanted to serve the country and deploy. And yeah, just you know, I'd love to hear a few few of your thoughts about that that time in your career. You come you kind of bring me back
2: in time now. Um well, it was like, like I said, I was 19 years old at that time, uh, so different perspective than today, especially now having kids and and uh, being more of a responsible human than I, I was back in the <laughs> day, because realistically, right. you're 19 years old, and uh, however, I had good cadre, I was with the Royal 22nd Regiment, the Bandus. Um and it, it was it was good to do your job, it was good to help over there. Um, yeah, it was, it's a good experience for me. Uh, all positive across. Uh, not, not the same experience for everybody, of course, but uh, uh, definitely learned a lot um, over there for sure.
0: Did you find that it was what your expectations were prior? Like you know, as you said, you you were young, and here you are going into combat. Um, that's a quick way to grow up fast. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, the same
2: thing. You see and do things that you never expect to do. And, and I'm not saying that in a negative way at all. One memory, and since you like to cover aviation, one thing, I'll, I have a love story with, with Chinook helicopter, right? Oh, cool. Our yeah. company was always deploying in, in onto operation uh, with Chinooks. And I will always remember that memory. One time we did a four-day operation just in advance for four days. And we we're all talking about it because that's what army do. Like we, we like to complain about stuff, right? <laughs> sure. And Like we did not want to go back in the track. We did, we didn't want to first walk back in the, with that weight. And also for operational reason, didn't want to walk back in our track. So, so fortunately our, our major was able to have, uh, air asset. And I want to always remember that we're set up an entire company and fortune Chinooks came with uh, with the top cover support and they all landed in a field with dust everywhere. We got in and ten minute flight later we're eating ice cream on the fob. You know, <laughs> like from being into a dangerous environment to now in a semi-secure location. I was yeah, anyway, good aviation memory. I will always have a love story with Chinook just because of that.
0: Oh the Chinook is such an iconic and amazing helicopter and uh, and such a capable platform. And yeah, you know just thinking about the fact of how much kit and equipment you would have to carry and the heat that you're in or cold, I guess, depending on the time of year, uh, but having to carry that and also being in a, in a danger zone, a combat zone, um, having to walk versus fly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you say. Exactly. Exactly. And well, you know, it's kind of maybe that's a good segue over to uh to Captain Shaw and talking about this particular rescue, which the incident happened on December twenty seventh, twenty twenty three. So, um, paint the picture for me, Uh, Captain, if you don't mind. Like, uh, what squadron are you with, and then how did you get this notification? Like, how how does that whole process happen?
1: Okay, yeah, I'll kind of walk you through that. So we we're both with uh, 435 squadron in Winnipeg. And it was during that two-week Christmas break where we're operating on an on-call basis, basically. So we have four different crews, and we just kind of rotate being on on posture. So you know, like a lot of Canadians that day, I was watching Team Canada play Latvia. Uh, it was mid-afternoon. And the way the process works, uh, I was the aircraft commander. So JRCC calls me first, and they start giving me basically the information they have. And it's all the kind of typical things you'd think, like, what it is, where it is, how many people, whatever information they have. Um, While I'm on the phone with them, I thought I'm doing some initial mission planning, getting a look at the weather in the area, seeing if I want to upload any additional fuel. And really at that point, it's about a four or five minute conversation again while I'm doing the mission planning and that's it. The task is accepted. And then they start calling the rest of the SAR crew as well as any of the technicians, any fuel guys that we might need to, to launch the aircraft.
0: And Jason, just for those that might not be familiar, uh, JRCC is.
1: Yeah, so it's Joint
0: Rescue Coordination Center,
1: uh, Trenton. So that's basically the center of Canada. So our area of responsibility basically is the the BC border all the way up to as far north as we can go and over to um, into Ontario as well. So here's Trenton. Yeah, JRCC Trenton is. Uh, that's who we belong to for search and rescue. Mm-hmm. So any type of tasking we would get, um, they would call the Sari
0: aircraft commander. Okay. And so in, in this case, you know, during that period, that was you. Um, but yeah. how would they have received the notification that this incident occurred? Like, are they going off an ELT transmitter or, or, or do you? Yeah, I,
1: couldn't, I couldn't speak in detail about like specifically how it works, but they do have a cell there, which has the ability to, um, essentially track elts and disseminate that information so right in, in this case i don't know the specifics of how they put together the entire tasking okay but uh, i'd imagine the elt uh, played a big part in it because mm-hmm. when they gave us the, the the type of elt i was going to a bit of detail the type of elt that that plane had was uh, it's called a 406 elt and in addition to this transmitting a tone it's able to give us coordinates so from JRCC in that initial task, five minutes on the phone with them, I was able to get a, a lat long coordinates of exactly what the crash was. So that's a, that's a huge help for that initial mission planning.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. If you've got latitude, longitude, boy, yeah. oh boy. Like, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a big time saver. At least it gets you in the right area. Uh, you yeah. Know. Um, okay. So, so you get the call from JRCC and then um does this E.L.T. or whatever information they passed on to you did did it give you any indication of what type of aircraft that that
1: yeah yeah they had all that I had the um, aircraft type color registration uh, pretty much everything we'd need
0: okay okay some
1: and, and... some details of the, the passengers that were on board oh you did, as did. Well, okay as well as where it was yeah right like from my point of view as the aircraft commander the the initial information I got from them at that point was really good it was. More than enough that I needed to start pretty detailed mission planning just sitting at my kitchen table and in that five minutes on the phone with them. Because okay. sometimes the information tends to you get maybe a little bit at the start and it kind of it kind of trickled in as they get it. But they uh that particular mission, yeah, they had a pretty complete package for us initially.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, that's great. And so you know, time is of the essence when it comes to yep. search and rescue. Um, tell me about roughly where this incident occurred, the crash, because I think that's salient to the conversation of where you guys are flying out of and how far yeah. you have to go and and what you have to kind of, you know, it, it, as you mentioned, you have to kind of prepare thinking about fuel and, and different stuff. So, so knowing distances obviously is, is important here.
1: Yeah. So if you just kind of picture that map of Canada where Winnipeg's, you know, towards the South in the center of Canada. Uh, This happened about 170 miles northeast of Yellowknife, which is just around 1,000 miles from Winnipeg. So So, just around the corner. Yeah, so (laughs) uh, for a mission like this, the the first thing I'm thinking, the first thing I'm thinking about is weather, but given how far it is, I have to make a decision initially on the phone if I want to request additional fuel, because we don't want to get up there and only have an hour on scene before we have to get out of there because we're low on fuel, so that's really one of the key decisions that have to be made from my point of view early on is um, where we're going. And I, I, ideally I want to get there, especially when the weather's bad and be able to stay on scene for multiple hours just to give us options. Right. So that was one of the key decisions
0: early on um, opted to upload extra fuel. How much would you have taken on? Like what's a typical loadout fuel wise? And what's like the max, like, did you take the max you're able to, or how does that work? Yeah.
1: So this. the, the st- for the Hercules, our aircraft sits ready to go when it's on SAR posture. Um, we kind of have a standardized fuel load we would use that works well for most missions within a certain geographical area because we have to consider things. We don't want the plane to be too heavy because that starts to affect some of the flight characteristics and whether or not we can even operate some of the ancillaries on the plane if it's too heavy. So we, I took just about the maximum amount of fuel that we could so I could get up there and have a... As, long as possible on scene before we had to go somewhere else for fuel
0: right and for and, for the listeners out there um we're talking about a c138 hercules yeah and and it's not a stretch right like i mean it's the, that's correct yeah it's the yeah, standard short i guess I, I don't know what the proper term is for. yeah that we though. call
1: it uh, we call it the stubby but you're correct it's not a, it's not a stretch
0: right right okay So you took on the max amount of fuel that you could, and I guess maybe this is just a good spot to cut to Sergeant Benoit just to kind of talk about how the C-130 is configured for search and rescue in terms of the equipment, because I think that's also important.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Again, if you think back about our area of operation that Jason mentioned, uh, we covered the Great Lakes all the way to, uh, to the North Pole, right? And we cover mountain, we cover water, we cover Arctic. So everything is in there, uh, realistically. Um, starting with the Sartic equipment, we, uh, the crew kind of makes fun of us because we got so many bags every shift we start with. But we got to bring uh, dry suit, uh, wet suit, mountain equipment, Arctic survival equipment, uh, and name it, all our dive equipments on board. So that's just to start uh, with our personal equipment. Our parachutes are in there, right? On a training day, we normally bring at least four parachutes just to train. So yeah. uh, that's what I like about there. We can bring all that stuff and there's room and the, the aircraft is capable. Right. But now, if you want to talk about the, uh, the the regular config in the aircraft, while well, we start in the back, we got uh, all our power techniques. So that's all flares for night stuff, which we use on that mission. Uh, we have smoke as well. That's used to throw in the water for boat in distress or, or, or person in the water. Uh, we also got smoke uh, to parachute to, to give us wind direction uh, and all our personal flare and, and all that. So that's all the ammunition we got. If we move on, we got, we have, there's, there's so much equipment on there. You got um, chainsaws to cut and uh, if we need to cut the DZ for a landing zone for, for an helicopter, we can do that. Um, we have all our mountain equipment from from big rescue system to traveling on Alpine terrain, avalanche equipment, or, or rock climbing. Uh, we have uh, SRKs, those are, uh, those are boats. Uh, they're a life raft that we can we can parachute to people in the water and they'll inflate as soon as they touch the water. So let's say a boat in distress that's sinking, uh, we can send that and people will, will get in as, as life raft. We got pumps to save boat if, if boats are taken on water. Uh, and then we have a significant amount of parachute to dispatch all that cargo. Uh, we have uh, cutting tools to get into wreckage. And then all our, our parachute and personal equipment are in there. Um, yeah, not to go into every single piece of equipment. We have a lot, to say the least. There's three big bins of equipment. And it takes the majority of the space in the, behind, behind the aircraft. And again, it's just to cover from Great Lakes to uh, North Pole.
0: Yeah, and Sergeant Benoit, you know, it's an unfair question for me to ask you to talk about all the different equipment you have, but you also have medical equipment.
2: Yeah. So one thing the listener needs to know is Sartex, and I know you you want to go in more in detail of what Sartex actually do, but yeah. uh, we are a paramedic, and yes, uh, we have all our medical equipment on board as well. We got two bags that we can parachute with, and uh, a lot of extra equipment for specific, for example. 80 uh, oxygen uh, and all the sub equipment, all the hypothermia gear takes a bit of, take most of the space for us in those banyan because we assume that most of the people we're going to rescue are hypothermic. Just giving the our area of operation, that's that's kind of one of our main focus, so
0: it's in there as well. Right, right, yeah, and so I assume that also means like survival that's, equipment too, and tents and whatever else that you might need. That's correct. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, like I said at the beginning of this episode, you know, we're talking to real life heroes, and, and I genuinely feel that for, for this episode uh, specifically, if not all of them. Um, so, Captain Shaw, you've got this notification. You're starting to formulate your plan. You've talked about, you know, the type of fuel load you need. Um, how quickly, once you got the call, did you guys mobilize and get out to the airfield and saddle up to lift off?
1: Yeah, so I'm sure everyone. Uh, once they give me that initial call, they start calling the rest of the crew after we're off the phone, and the idea is you're out the door, or wherever you live, like within minutes, really. Everyone's got their stuff ready to go. Uh, put your uniform on, start heading to work. Um, I'll kind of take it from there. Where once all the crew and everyone arrives at the hangar, yeah, it's just a huge team effort to get the SAR aircraft launched as soon as we can, and yeah, just to give you an idea of what what's happening really. So for the crew. The standard SAR crew is seven. We had eight that night because we had an extra SARTEC with us. So we have two pilots, one of which is the aircraft commander, the other is the first officer. We have a navigator. So uh, those guys are working on, they're doing the flight planning, they're looking at the weather. We have our flight engineer and our loadmaster. They're out the aircraft pre flighting it, getting it ready to fly. And the SARTECs are loading in all the additional gear that we're going to want. Uh, we have, in that case, we had some technicians that were fueling the aircraft. So it's just, all hands on deck. Um, in that case, we're talking like a time frame of a couple hours from the time the task is accepted uh, to the time we are airborne flying towards Yellowknife.
0: Okay. All right. So a couple hours, like, I mean, you know, what do you think about just transit time to get everybody to the base and into the aircraft ready to go? And that's... Yeah,
1: uh, yeah the longest thing is it's really the pre-flight, like, and mm-hmm. the fuel jobs that have to happen because uh, it takes the flight engineer a set amount of time to do the pre-flight inspections of the aircraft, and it's not something we can cut corners on. Right. Um, so overall, it went pretty smooth from the time I got the call, from the time we accepted the task, and we were airborne. Uh, no real, no real delays, no real
0: issues. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And and sergeant benoit like i mean because you had a latin long and you knew where you were going is there any adjustment to the kit like do you do you yes. take, take stuff off put stuff on you know yes like
2: jason mentioned it, your your initial call with rcc will give you a lot of details mm-hmm. but we all have specific questions we we want to know uh, on the pilot side weather is really important because they want to know what they're getting into for myself uh what I want to know before leaving is do I have enough manpower or do I have enough equipment before I take off to accomplish that mission? In this case, we had a bit of time. And when I, I, I heard about the initial call was eight, uh, and we'll come back to that later on. The initial call was eight patient. Okay. Up north, uh, we did with the intention. Again, intention is important because RCC doesn't order me to jump. He's requesting our our, our assistance right and and the decision comes uh it's a crude decision and mostly taken by by myself and jason Uh, but in this case they asked us to go and see and potentially spend the night if we could so uh i decided to call in for more manpower and the third Sartec, uh, matt henry was uh came um, and even though he wasn't on schedule at all most of the Sartec will have their phone on 24 7 just in case that one phone call come, and I decided to call Matt because he's really uh, he's one of the new guy in the shop and he's he's a very keen team member. And I called him. answered right away. First ring. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah, we need your help. Can you? Can you? How far are you from the work? Fifteen minutes. So like, okay, I'm gonna load your gear. Just get straight to the plane. And that's what he did.
0: Wow, that's <laughs> so cool. and so. So yeah,
2: we we called in an extra team member and also extra equipment. So we, we brought extra tent and extra medical supply.
0: Okay. And I guess this is a good point to speak about the SAR search and rescue capability for Canada, because, um, thankfully this was a relatively small aircraft crash, um, as it were. Um, but you guys have to be ready to respond to like a major incident, like an airliner, God forbid that ever happened. But, uh, yeah, the, the amount of equipment that you have to be able to take or, or, you know, having having the ability to call in people like you did is, I think, really important in that, God forbid, eventuality.
2: Yeah, 100%. Uh, it's important for the listener to know that there's a system in place as well, and we call that the major, major air disaster. And that doesn't extend only to uh, aircraft crash. It can be a cruise ship up north. Uh, it could be train. It could be because, you know, train can travel across remote location as well. And that's where we would come into play it can be bus or, or there's a system in place. This time wasn't activated, but the system is we would probably go with the initial res- resources we have, and then they would spool up additional resource. For example, uh, Trenton will get spooled up. All the other shop across Canada would make their way to that initially. And then Trenton, all the mage aid capability where they would call in people with the J model and, and additional equipment. And they can come into later on to, to help us manage the scene. So there is a system in place for that. This time around, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't required to activate one.
0: Right, right. Okay. Because and- we
2: knew it was a small aircraft and we knew it was eight people with, with, uh, with minor injury. Okay. RCT knew that.
0: Okay, RCC knew that. Um and um ten
2: people, sorry, later on,
0: ten people later, right? Yeah, you mentioned eight at first, and then it yes. it changed, right? Um and so Captain Shaw, you know, um, Sergeant Benoit just mentioned that uh, the C one thirty J Hercules is also used. Um just again for the listeners that are out there, um in speaking about search and rescue, fixed wing search and rescue in Canada, um perhaps you could just because you are part of that organization um, as a pilot, Um, could you just share with with us what is available from a Royal Canadian Air Force perspective? Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, we have the H model Hercules operates out of Comox. Uh, There's Asset 435 in Winnipeg. Um, Also, the J model is in Trenton. And in Greenwood Nova Scotia, there's H models as well. And we have the twin Otter up in Yellowknife as well.
0: Right. And then, of course, the future of the fleet is eventually, once it becomes initial operational capability, will be the CC 295 Kingfisher. But yeah, as it stands today in early 2024, it is the C-130H, the C-130J, and the Twin Otter uh, that responds. And actually, that's an interesting point. So the Royal Canadian Air Force Twin Otters uh, operate, I believe, out of Yellowknife. So I don't know if you know, but How was it that you guys got the call versus them?
1: Yeah. I probably couldn't speak intelligently on that decision-making process. Um, Sure. Yeah. I'll leave it there. I just know uh, we were the, we were the ones tasked
2: by JRCC. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. There's, there's, there's no SARTEC in Yellowknife just, just for Uh, for as well. So they, they could have been uh, their task, but they wanted people on the ground to provide assistance. And also, uh, They cannot land, they can, and they're really proficient at it. Uh, At night, in this weather, I think it wasn't an option for them either. Gotcha,
0: gotcha. Well, that makes total sense. Hey, everyone. I'd like to take a quick moment to thank our co-sponsor for this episode, and that is IMP Aerospace and Defence. IMP Aerospace and Defence is one of Canada's largest and longest-standing aerospace and defence organisations and is a trusted partner to customers around the world. With over 2,400 staff at operations across Canada, IMP Aerospace and Defence is known worldwide for delivering a wide breadth of innovative and tailored support solutions to all branches of the military, as well as government and commercial operators in the space, air, land, and sea sectors. The episode you're hearing now centers around the search and rescue heroes of the Royal Canadian Air Force and the iconic C-130 Hercules aircraft that they fly. These Hercules aircraft and the newer C-130J are supported by IMP Aerospace and Defense at their facilities in Halifax, Nova Scotia and Abbotsford, British Columbia. IMP is a Lockheed Martin-approved C-130 service center for the legacy Hercules aircraft and one of only three heavy maintenance centers for the C-130J Super Hercules. IMP provides comprehensive program management, performance-based fleet management, engineering solutions, maintenance, repair, and overhaul, supply chain management, and in-service support and training. As Canada's longest-serving design approval organization, IMP Aerospace and Defense also provides design, analysis, and testing for aircraft repairs, modifications, and installations. Also, supplemental type certification, structural life extension programs, and so much more. Not only does IMP support Canada's fleet of Hercules aircraft, but they also support Hercules aircraft from the United States military and allied nations from around the globe. When it comes to supporting the Hercules and other military, government, OEM and commercial aircraft few can match the expert capabilities resident at IMP aerospace and defense to learn more about IMP aerospace and defense please visit IMP aerospace and Defense.com. now let's get back to our heroes um, so okay so once you get airborne um, what were you expecting and yeah you know, what time did you guys get airborne and in terms of the location you were going to, uh, what was the weather that you were expecting?
1: Yeah. Okay. So we got airborne uh, late afternoon in Winnipeg. I can walk you walk you through that. It'll be about three and a half hour transit up to up to Yellowknife. Okay. And it goes by pretty quick because we're doing a lot of different stuff. So we're taking that three and a half hours. We're getting any weather updates, and we're also talking to JRCC, trying to get any additional information they have on the casualties on the on the scene. Maybe additional resources that they're trying to bring in, um, and the Sartex and the Loadmaster—they're taking that time to get all that equipment ready to go. Um, what myself and Vince are doing, once we have all that—the latest information—we have the complete picture. Of what we're going into, uh, we're coming up with a couple good options for what we're going to do when we get there, based on the basically the weather we have. So our our intent is to try to deploy the Sartex as soon as we can, but we have to be prepared for a couple backup options if the weather's not um cooperating so what what it was doing that night there had been a low pressure system that had moved through that area earlier in the day and it was still tracking tracking east but all the nasty weather that kind of wraps around low pressure system was still over that area so we knew generally the weather was going to be improving in that area like on the scale of hours but we didn't know exactly how it was going to be when we got up there as we got closer i was getting information or. Forecasts and observations from Yellowknife and a few few other stations that are in that area, and it looked like um, it looked like it might be too low initially to deploy the StarTex right away, which kind of led us to having a couple of good um, couple of good backup plans.
0: What would have been those backup plans had you not been able well, to deploy the Sartex?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really not too complicated. It's, um, we had enough fuel to wait. So, from what we wanted to do, from everything we knew. We wanted to get the Sartex in as soon as we can Uh, if we couldn't do that we discussed at least uh dropping some equipment we have the option to wait out because we have the fuel for a few hours we have the option to wait until the weather improved and it'd really be some some combination of those three so the last thing we want to do from from our perspective is to arrive overhead planning to do one thing and it turns out the weather's not going to support that and we just we don't we're caught flat footed we don't have another option so we when we have like a three and a half hour trains like that, we definitely uh, spend that time getting all the information we can and just building a few good plans. That's what we did in that case.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, I had the great privilege and honor to be invited on the last operational flights of the CC 115 Buffalo that the Royal Canadian mm-hmm. Air Force operated. And, you know, I had uh, headphones and microphone and The one thing that I can share with listeners from my experience was, even though it was an operational flight, but it was an operational training flight, we weren't on a tasked SAR mission, but the crew coordination that I remember, distinctly remember, was so impressive. And it was like, everybody was switched on talking about, okay, what are we going to do if this happens? Or, you know, what, it, it, just that strategizing was really, really, uh, really awesome to see because it was very professional and very focused. And, uh, and so I can totally appreciate what you're sharing because uh, I imagine that that's exactly what was happening on your flight.
1: Yeah. I mean, the transit up, we've done this, like we've done this quite a few times. So I mean, I'm sure Vince could speak to the same thing. It's, it's fairly routine it's preparing equipment it's getting information it's making plans it's um the crew kind of does their own individual jobs for a portion of the uh, transit up there like I said the guys on the back of the equipment us up front getting weather and all then at some point we all come back together we get on the comms together and um we're just making sure everyone's on the same page of what the plan is going to be I make sure everyone knows what the weather is um, That's it. Just getting everyone on the same page in that last maybe hour, half hour before we go into the area.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue over to, um, you know, jump me to where you arrived on scene overhead. Um, What was, what did you, what did you experience? Like what what was the, what were the conditions?
1: Okay. So we made the whole
0: plan based off the forecast
1: and based off the latest actual weather we had, Uh, we descended into the, uh, into the area. And I'll just try to paint a picture of the weather right away. So it's dark by this point uh, We're there, this is early to mid evening now and it had been dark uh, for a few hours, like late afternoon at that time of year, that area of the country. So yeah, multiple low layers of cloud, uh, low visibility, visibility, there's blowing snow, you know, surface to a thousand feet, um, high winds, um, It's pretty bumpy as well. So that's the initial kind of area we're dealing with. Um, you want me to walk you through kind of how we attacked that? or
0: Yeah, no, I, I would love to hear that. And I, I guess um, one of the things, uh, you know, that's key is as you ingress into the area, kind of what altitude are you at? And then what are you dropping down to? Because I guess it really depends, you know, particularly yeah. if you're going to drop people at the back, right? But
1: uh, sure. Yeah, I'll go into some of the details and the way we plan for that. So uh, when we go in somewhere at night, we wanted to send... So we're, we're flying up there like at flight level 200, 220, something like that. Um, when we descend into a search area like that, we want to do it safely. So we would typically use like a, a minimum IFR safe altitude. And we're talking in that area, like a, a few thousand feet. So we would descend down to that area, uh, had some concerns with some forecasted turbulence as well. So we're just kind of systematically taking a little bit of time, descending at a thousand feet, assessing, descending another thousand feet, assessing till we get in that area. And comfortable initially being in that area around the crash site at a minimum safe altitude at night. Uh, What we do at at that point is we basically start applying for night operations. We almost have like like a playbook of things that we can do depending on what we find. So we just start applying the things, the procedures that we use during training. So the first thing we do, we locate the target electronically using the ELT and the position we located them in was coinciding with the uh, earlier ordinance I'd got from JRCC. So that all made sense. We were comfortable with that. Uh, Then we climb up a couple thousand feet. We drop flares from the Herc for illumination. Then as the flares are coming down, we basically descend and circle the flares. And what we're trying to do is illuminate the entire area out to a couple miles and just make sure that entire area around the crash site is safe for us to operate in. And then at that time, we're also trying to visually see the... uh, the plane on the ground as well. And we did, um, myself and uh, Vince seen it. He was able to he'll talk a bit about more about it. I'm sure make an initial assessment on what we see on the ground, the area immediately around the um, crash site. So that, that's kind of our starting point. We know the areas around the crash is safe for us to operate in. We've visually seen the crash on the ground and the, uh, the area around it. Um, from that point, while we were doing that, it looked like the ceilings were coming up to the point where we would be able to uh, deploy the Sartex right away, and we wanted to take advantage of that window while we had it, because we didn't know, you know, in half an hour the clouds could come down, and that's really the big thing. We needed the clouds to be a certain height above the ground, a certain ceiling to be able to deploy the Sartex. Right. So while we appeared to have that during the initial stage of the mission, um, we took we took all the information we had. All the weather information everything the extraction plan what we saw on the ground uh what our tasking from jrcc was and myself and vince we we put all this together assessed the risk and yeah we made the decision to insert them as soon as we could while we had the window
0: nice and i seem to recall some reporting that there was like high winds so how much of an issue was that
1: uh yeah there certainly was high winds maybe uh maybe vince could speak better on that from in terms of what that means to
2: jump out of
0: the hook <laughs> yeah yeah Vince over to you yeah I want to go back to one thing though
2: and you mentioned uh, I want to piggyback on the crew communication and uh, sure so I, I can I'll speak about that night because uh, Jason and I are used to work together by that point it's our second big uh, mission this year uh, night jump um, and it's the way I picture this is a dance uh, you were flying into a really dynamic environment not everybody fly a plane in low altitude in, in a blizzard at night in the Arctic. Right. And we do, because that's what we do. And you're could hear a pin drop in the plane. It's, it's just it's so loud. You don't. But uh, Jason is flying the plane. I don't know how far from me you are about, I don't know, 60 feet, 70 feet. And then you're on the second level as well. And he's flying. He doesn't see me. So the communication is really important. Right. Pilots are tasked to try to fly the plane. And we're busy doing our stuff. We have really good training and we train for those situations all the time. So it becomes kind of second nature. And then we have just a bounce back and forth of good communication. So we know what I'm doing. I know what he's doing. And once we find that target, we got eyes on it. And then we never lose sight of it again. We just constantly circle in a left orbit around it. And then we talk back and forth. We do a briefing back and forth. Everybody in the crew is briefing. And so those procedures take a bit of time to do it safely. We don't go there and and blindly open up the door and and jump. So that's kind of what's going on initially. And and yes, there's a lot of risk mitigation in place uh, because we take a safe approach going in the site. And after that, the decision, like I said, the decision to jump, it's not RCC that orders us to do it. And it's not me that say, let's go. We, We go that blindly, right? So it's once we got eyes on the target, We do what's called uh, what jason described as a terrain and target assessment and on the target i have my two guys in the back got their eyes in the window with me and we try to figure out all hazards in the area and this time around the the lakes were kind of hazard for us on the transit up we asked for ice thickness. it's just one of the detail to mitigate the risk like if i can choose to land on the ice I know it's an area that's clear of obstacle for me, even though it's a hard surface, at least I know there's no rock or trees. Uh, and in this case, because uh, it was quite warm at that time in in Winnipeg and all the lakes were not frozen, so we're not sure. Uh turns out the ice was uh, two feet thick, uh, 24 inches thick uh, up in the Arctic. So that wasn't a concern. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, that's just one example. We, we look for hazards. And then uh, the visibility was was definitely a factor and also the wind. So your question now, just to, now to go back to your initial question, the wind, uh, just to give you an idea on, on a training day, the limit we accept for wind is 25 knots. That's okay. the safe limit that for a day jump. That's a safe limit. For a night jump, it's 20 knots. That's the limit of our wind for training. Uh, the forecast was a low-level jet with significant wind, uh, we did a pass at a thousand feet for observation, the lowest we got over target, and it was at 48 knot, and we knew the wind was increasing towards the ground. So we kind of s- assumed the wind was in the 50. Um, so I turned around and look at uh, look at the two Sartex, uh, one's Matt Henry that I discussed, he was the third man on the flight, and my actual team member was uh, Alexandre Fortin. Alexan, is the it's his first year he was qualified operational team member at the unit uh, just before Christmas So first mission wow one of his first night shift and he's hit and I can circle back to that later on when we're talking about tempo and training sure um so I turn around and I look at them and I ask them you guys good with that and of course they're gonna see yes and then it's not only us, it's the crew well Jason, you're comfortable with that. Uh, and the crew, if there's one time to speak, it's not because I'm able to do it and everybody's, yeah, no we're we're confident, we're confident because yes, it's windy, we trust your procedure uh, and also like to be quite honest, uh, there's a life of 10 people on the ground as well and that weighs heavy on the decision making and that's why we're willing to cross our training limit and accept a bit of risk in order to save life and that's as simple as that we're willing to put our life on the line to go help people in need. Um, so, we, yeah, so we did We did a standard procedure. It was quite far. Uh, we jumped quite far, and we decided to go at 2,000 feet because, to paint a clear picture, we were battling cloud layers. So from a 0 to 1,000, it's blizzard year. You have a hard time to see through. Uh, and then I asked for 2,000 just to, be, to, just to have a bit more time to react in case we have an emergency, but that was... Just below a cloud layer, and the aircraft had to cross a cloud layer from two to three thousand feet. I think, Jason. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's there, a couple layers in there.
2: There's another layer over top of that. So we, uh, the way a, a night jump sequence, uh, the way we do it is we drop what's called a disco ball. It's, it looks really like a disco ball, and we we light colors on it. In this case, it's green color we got three color options. So we, we drop the disco ball, and then we follow it flying to see how far it gets from the, the wreckage or target. Okay. Once we know that exact position, we're going to do a timing run because the wind was right. That time, we did a timing run. So I knew that from that disco ball that landed on the ground to my aircraft, it was a full minute. And then if I keep flying the same direction for another minute, I know this is where I need to exit. Gotcha. As simple as that.
1: Yeah, so it's definitely not... Opening the ramp and jumping out, it's um it's a pretty specific procedure.
2: Yeah, yeah. So once we had that, um, we have our exit point, we know where it is. Now we climb back up to altitude. This time, just under that top layer, top tick layer, we drop the two flares and then dive down to jump altitude to 2,000 feet, fly over the target, fly over exit point, and then three jumpers out.
0: Yeah, and I've seen some video from your actual jump, and I noticed that on top of your helmets, I guess, or or the the protective headgear that you, that you wear, there was also strobes. Um, so I guess that's so you guys are able to to track each other and know where you are. Yeah, that's
2: correct, hundred percent. So we have a strobe in the back, so we know if you see a strobe, you're going in the good direction, mm-hmm. and we have the steady light up front, just a headlamp. To see where we're going, even though we have the flares, but I know if I see a steady light that somebody's heading towards me, right. Uh, right. So it's really important to see the other jumpers in the sky, especially we're all jumping at the same, sitting at the same altitude, two thousand feet, and we all try to land in the same, in the same spot. So um, I was the first out, followed by the two guys, uh, and we made it. We made it to. Exactly where I wanted to, just like a uh, fifty to hundred feet behind the plane, where there's no rock, because because what we could see from the top was tundra, and tundra is is salt and pepper. That's the only thing you see. So salt is good, pepper is rocks, and they are big boulders. So right. you got so we're aiming for a a patch of snow, which was just the one behind the the wreckage, uh, close to a lake, it was a small lake. That's where we landed. Uh, Pretty uh, pretty proud of uh, my uh, junior team members because they were right there on the spot.
0: Oh, that's awesome! That is so cool. Um, and what was it like, kind of coming down? Like you said, you know, you, you hit the target that you wanted to, uh, but you're coming down in blizzard conditions.
2: Yeah, I would say it's you don't realize it at the time. It's quite stressful in the sense that uh, you only have one shot. At it. Right. You know, you cannot go back in the plane, and so I I, I made a bad <laughs> drop. I would like to do it again right and you don't want to land anywhere in the tundra where you don't know exactly where you are so and you know there's 10 people that need your assistance as well so pressure's on for sure and pressure's on because it's nobody else it's my responsibility as a team lead to that day we we have different options but that day I decided to guide them in uh, it's it's the first guy's responsibility to guide the stack in so if I miss the target they all they're going to follow me
0: um, right right and before you guys jumped did you drop any equipment as well or was that after no we no you know. just you just took the equipment that that you had on you and so uh how much would you have been carrying
2: so i would say in between 80 to 100 pound uh each we, we call a sarpel that's the bag we jump in front of us okay uh so in that we had two medical bag so the team members carried the medical equipment i do have some medical equipment mostly electronics and and uh communication stuff
0: mm-hmm.
2: and also all our personal Arctic survival equipment. So we need warm hosts cause we don't jump with all our, our warm gear. The contrast is too big from a warm plane. So you just end up sweating. So what we do is we kind of find a fine balance. And once you're on the ground, you get dressed and also add uh, a firearm just for bear defense. Cause you don't know there's wolf, there's, there's bear in the Arctic. So it's common procedure to bring you.
0: Hey everybody. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Cubic Defense, for their support of this podcast. Part of what we do at Go Bold is engage with warfighters to learn about the things they do and discuss topics like leadership, emerging technologies, and new capabilities. In this episode, you are hearing about the importance of training and the importance of communications, both of which are areas where Cubic Defense is recognized as a global leader. Cubic is revolutionizing the ultra-portable satellite communications industry through their range of the world's most portable and secure satellite antennas. Engineered to revolutionize data and voice communications for allied forces, Cubic's inflatable satellite antennas and deployable cellular solutions provide industry-leading portability, fast setup times, and reduced operational costs. Easy to deploy with high bandwidth throughput and a low cost of ownership, Cubic's Gator inflatable satellite antennas are used by allied forces and aid agencies in some of the most extreme environments on the planet. They are ideal for first-in deployments, remote applications, and contingency scenarios where transportation and space are limited. These portable and secure satellite antennas deliver up to a 50% reduction in pack-out weight and volume compared to deployable, rigid antennas of similar size. Cubix inflatable satellite antennas take as little as 30 minutes to set up. They are 50% lighter compared to equivalent VSAT antennas. They maintain performance in high winds and extreme temperatures, Their smaller profile results in reduced shipping and satellite access costs, and they support common bands like KU, C, X, and KA bands. I want to thank Cubic Defense for their support, and I encourage you to learn more about their incredibly versatile systems, so please visit cubic.com. Now, let's get back to our chat all right so let's jump forward to the fact that now you're on the ground all three of you are on the ground and tell me what happened yeah
2: Yeah, so first thing we do is we communicate to the aircraft Uh, usually we're we take our time we're taking a few uh taking a breather, talking a bit and then calling the aircraft this time that's the first thing i did because jason was looking forward to to hear my voice i'm sure so i gave them the relief uh that we were all good and i also mentioned on my first communication, uh, to quote what I said, is uh, I said it's 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 porty down here, yeah, because it was full blizzard blizzard at that point. You, you're leaving a, a safe, warm aircraft to now you're in the Arctic, and within <laughs> within 30 seconds, right? Uh, and I was it was quite the sight, to be honest. There's the flare in the air; you could see the glow. Uh, I could look up and see that 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 wreckage right above us. And there is also a tent, uh, a small yellow tent, and I could see feet sticking out of it. Hmm. So Matt landed the closest to the site. He made his way to the the tent right away and did an initial assessment. So there's six patient tents. The tent was uh, what I described as uh, it looked like a movie from from Everest. Okay. Yeah, a small yellow tent and pinned down by the wind and feet sticking out. Wow. So we got ourselves behind it to get sheltered from the wind and, and kind of rejig your equipment a bit and, and talk to the patient. I did not do a textbook paramedic assessment of taking the clothes off and looking at them. I just did an is- initial triage through the, the tarp. Everybody's talking, everybody's conscious and just reporting minor injury and stuff we could deal later on with. So I left one start mat there, and then I moved on, moved down to the aircraft. There, uh, was, we knew at that point there was 10 people uh, because the, in flight, the we, we talked to RCC and we, we came with an update. And where the confusion was relate to JRCC that there's eight passenger. That's correct. There's eight passenger plus two pilots. So we 10 10 patients. Right. So we made our way to the aircraft. Uh, and as I was looking through to get a, a point of entry, I realized the aircraft was landed on the edge of that cliff, which was the wind was so strong for that, from that, that blizzard that it kind of created a, a cornice of snow. And that was about three, four feet wide. So that aircraft looked kind of stable from the bottom because it looks like there's only the tail that that was sticking out, but it was kind of in the balance point on the edge of the cliff. Like you would see in a movie with a car dangling on a cliff. So the, the aircraft was tipping like that. And with the gusts, 50 knots. You could feel the aircraft moving a bit, so there that was, that was a concern for me. But I still had to assist the patient inside. So we went in. Uh, there was two gentlemen inside that were unable to move due to uh, injuries. Uh, yeah, I don't want to go too much in detail with medical conditions, but uh, four per- person inside, two were critical, two were uh, able to move, but they were staying in the plane to uh, to assist the two other. From there, we took control. Uh, Alex came in the plane with me and uh, we started our initial assessment. I didn't stay there for too long. I was trying to relay information to Jason so uh, so he had an idea of what was happening and he can relay to RCC. Mm -hmm. And as I was stepping out of the aircraft, there's a team of uh, two snowmobiles that came in to my surprise from the mine. The mine's about 20 kilometers away, which you can cover it with your car in in no time. It took them a couple hours in the blizzard in the Arctic to, uh, to cover that distance with the snowmobile. So yeah. four, four member of the emergency response team from the mine came, and uh, we had a kind of an awkward conversation where I introduced myself and they didn't really quite understand where we came from.
0: <laughs> right,
2: yeah. I had to explain them a couple of times, yeah, just jump from the, that plane that's over there. <laughs>
0: right, right Once yeah. Once
2: we got over that, they're, they're really happy to be a uh, part of this and and help, and uh, they were happy to receive yeah. guidance. Um, because it's quite outside their scope, to be honest. Uh, of uh, that's that's what we do for a living. That's they're trying on, on on different type of rescue. Sure. So first our business was to secure the plane, which they did grantly They they secured the plane so we, we could work in it uh, and safely. And then while that was happening, I was talking to uh to Jason up there and uh asking for equipment. So all the equipment I, I described earlier, we can uh it's not only a SARTEK responsibility to dispatch them, the crew is trained as well. So it's not a uh, standard procedure for SARTEK to jump first or dispatch gear first. It's, it's like Jason mentioned, it's a playbook. We choose whatever will best benefit the mission. And in this case, I didn't want to drop anything in the wind without being on the ground to, to be able to receive it if I could. So that's what we did. Uh, and then, yeah, we call in bundle. Call in three bundle, uh, starting with... Uh, Tents. Um, we got different type of tents, but this time I decided to to use ice fishing tents, uh, big ice fishing tents, and they're they're quite warm and uh, they're easy to set up. You can pop one in, in thirty seconds.
0: Oh wow! Okay, that was okay. one bundle.
2: Uh, other bundle was a toboggan. We have a, a big toboggan, and and there you have food, stove, lantern, sleeping bags, uh, air mattress, and and name it. So. So that was that was useful, and also some hypothermia uh, equipment on the last bundle. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I believe for for uh, for Jason side of things, I, I believe this was uh, quite challenging. Those jobs. Right, Jason. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to hear the
1: the different. At, at that point, I should add like me and Vince are living like two completely different lives. At that point, like he's on the ground dealing right. with everything that's going on there, and uh, we have our own thing going on in the aircraft. Like we knew the mine rescue team was en route. But given like the undulating terrain, they couldn't actually see the crash site. So we were trying to help them get to the uh, aircraft by basically we would fly over the crash site and we would radio them when we were over the crash site and they would kind of steer generally in that direction. And eventually I think it was Matt, maybe one of the Sartex launched up a couple of red flares and that was that kind of final link that the the mine rescue guys saw that and headed in that direction. That's, I guess that's when they roll up and you guys, and Vince was able to see them, but, um, yeah, I guess we were I guess that first assessment and everything from you guys took about an hour and we then we got into the equipment drops. Um I'd say from my point of view the conditions probably deteriorated significantly prior to that. Uh yeah. the vids had come down quite a bit. The winds had probably getting a little bit more gusty, a little bit more low level uh turbulence going on. And we uh we dropped a second disco ball. So we dropped the uh Again, it's just like a beach ball size thing of lights that uh, we drop one specifically for the bundles, and our, our navigator Jeremy Simmons. He's in the back of the plane. I'm flying, but he's responsible for basically calling the drop, and then our loadmaster Corey Stewart. He's the guy that's responsible for dispatching the equipment out of the plane. So it's a whole crew. Um, I'm basically flying over the disco ball at that uh, low altitude, down to about six or seven hundred feet, and. Due to the visibility, we're kind of seeing everything at the last minute. Uh, We're trying to put the equipment, uh, Vince was giving us some feedback on the ground. We had basically an open area past the target that we were trying to get everything into. And he had coordinated one of the uh, snowmobilers on the ground. So we had our target area and we, um, yeah, we made the three equipment drops and we also had the toboggan as well. So that, that whole part there took about an hour or so to get everything on the ground for those guys.
0: Wow. And then so once you once you've dropped all of that stuff, um, there's no elevator back up to the aircraft. So how long did you stay on station before you you had to get going with your fuel state?
2: Yeah, we
1: had a all in all about four hours on scene
0: for us. So it worked out pretty good
1: that after we we dropped that last bundle and then at that same time, we're until Vince can get his satellite radio out of his he sat down out of his bag and operational and everything. We're we're kind of serving as the communications relay. Mm-hmm. So, but equipment's out, they're starting to set up camp. They have everything under control. Uh we're sending those last updates to JRCC, the information we're getting from the guys on the ground. And that's about the point we're coming up to we call it Bingo Fuel, which is uh, a fuel number. And in this case, uh the best bet for us was we ended up leaving the area and heading to Edmonton for fuel for ultimately going back to Winnipeg
0: okay so you went back to edmonton um
1: yeah stopped in edmonton then we got back to winnipeg early the next morning wow
0: wow holy smokes um so total time in the air uh roughly speaking um i think you mentioned about three and a half hour transit there four hours on station uh, yeah
1: right like we took off around supper got home around breakfast (laughs) (laughs) something like that plus (laughs) or minus a couple hours
0: right 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 wow and in the meantime uh sergeant benoit you're you're on the ground and and you and your team and and you're looking after these patients
2: yeah so again it's it's a it's a team call so the couple game plan we had was talking about that bingo situation and that's something i want to know before i get boots on the ground what's what's the aircraft going to do and so jason was up front with me in the air He's like okay i'm at bingo what what do you think was best and And we had everything we needed to spend the night. We have the manpower. We had the equipment and the knowledge. Uh, So I told them we were good and go as planned. And and they did. And one thing I want to mention is we're quite used to work with with the aircraft. Um, So we're used to have that kind of that sound of the aircraft doing an orbit, if that makes sense. Sure. The background noise that we're used to have. And once it's not there, even though he told me I'm leaving, you're like, okay, we're alone in the Arctic. <laughs> yeah. It's funny as it is. And, and side conversation, uh, the, the patient told me the same thing. Like that sound of the irk when you guys first showed up, it's, I will always remember that. It was such a relief. Yeah. That's why when we gain contact with the, with the wreckage, we don't leave side of day because it has a huge psychological impact on survivors because they, they know we're there for them. Anyways, sidetrack, we're with patients. Um, yeah, now we, we start setting up tents and, and like I mentioned, the aircraft the, kind of landed on top of a cliff, uh, you know, remember earlier. So we set up camp just below that cliff. So we're, we're sheltered from the wind, set up three ice fishing tents and then transferred all our patients into those tents. The two that were stuck in the aircraft were quite a challenge to get out, but we did uh, We did very good with, uh, with the help of the, the minor team. So we got everybody up in the tents and then start surviving for the night. So once everybody was there, we set up sleeping bags, air mattress. Um, Alex and Matt, uh, the two team members, they, uh, they took each a critical patient and spent the night with them as I was going around and, and doing assessment on, on eight others make sure everybody was was all right. So we spent a total of 14 hours doing that. So within 14 hours, you have a bit of time to spend. Um, everybody got fed uh, a warm meal. Uh, we're staying on top of their hydration and uh, and we spent most of the night uh, talking to them and exchanging story, which was, they're all, so all those eight, uh, sorry, 10 patients were, their hard worker, they, they were there to open up the uh, the ice road so that mines only gets replenished throughout uh, winter by road. And they have to build that that, that road on legs with ice. And that was the crew there to open up that, the, the road. So they're all dressed to and all used to work outside and all hard workers. Right. All tough people. And uh, so we made connection. I actually spent an hour on the phone today with with one of the patients. And, and uh, I consider him a, a friend now because it's something, like I told him, it's, it's an experience we're going to. We're all, the crew included, all going to remember for the rest of their life, uh, because fortunately it's such a, a positive experience as well. Because everybody survived, uh, of course, a couple of injuries, but uh, everybody's alive. So that's that's the. That's a win. Yeah, that's a win. So I, most of the patient were able to sleep a bit through the night. Sartex, we we didn't. think like if we we kind of rotated through to make sure everybody was all right. Um, and then i was on communication with rcc uh, every couple of hours uh, just with a window of commas uh, to save batteries on this phone, but mm-hmm. uh, we would relay patient information to them so they can update the medevac flight coming to, uh, to help us and also i would get updated timing for extraction so the the intent was uh sunrise to have choppers come in and, and get everybody out uh sunrise in the arctic at that time came at ten thirty in the morning so <laughs> We had quite a bit to wait, right. uh, but the morale was great. Everybody went from uh, mildly hypothermic, of course, very cold being in the environment, to uh, to, IP, uh, to help tear down the camp and, and laughing and joking in the morning. Went from a really, uh don't want to say herbal, but something uh, strong experience to uh, the moon was quite light in the morning. Let's put it that way. It was, was better. So three uh, A-star helicopter were contracted from uh, from Yellowknife came in the morning. Uh, we marked uh, LZ for them. And uh, they came on communication the exact time. And then we loaded all patients and gear in there and then transit from there to uh, to the mine. And at the mine, there's a small airstrip and two medevac flight were, were waiting for us. So we loaded patient and ourselves at the end. And uh, so a direct uh, diabetic mine to Yellowknife. And that was the end, we transferred them uh, to EMS and they went to the hospital at the airport.
0: That's awesome. That's all like I mean, for a a search and rescue that spans those distances, spans the type of climatic conditions that you had to deal with. Uh, some serious injuries, thankfully not too many. And for everyone to survive and everyone to come away with, you know, even some friendships out of it. Um, tragic that it happened, unfortunate that it happened, but what a wonderful experience, all all told. And Man, I can't thank you guys enough. Like, I mean, you are the epitome of talking to real life heroes. And I just really, really thank you for taking the time to describe what happened, because I hope that whoever listens to this, whether they be in Canada or internationally, will A, learn something about the Canadian Armed Forces and the fact that you guys do search and rescue across the whole country and, uh, and the capabilities that you have. Um, but also the professionalism that you guys exhibit. And uh, I'm totally impressed. You know, I like I shared a little bit earlier, I've had the opportunity to see it in person. But for those that might never get that chance, I hope they enjoy this conversation. So I really thank both of you for your time and, uh, and for doing what you do. It's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And you guys are both very humble. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's awesome. I really, really do appreciate it. Um, That, my friends, was Captain Jason Shaw, the aircraft commander at uh, 435 Squadron of the Royal Canadian Air Force, which is based in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and Sergeant Vincent C. Benoit, who is a search and rescue technician with the Canadian Armed Forces, also based at 435 Squadron in Winnipeg, Manitoba thanks everybody for joining us for this episode of Go Bold. We hope you really enjoyed it. Uh, I certainly did. And uh, we hope you'll join us for another episode. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.
2: The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is "Parasail" by Silent
0: Partner.